You think you've got issues? Hi, I'm Dr. Laurie Appel. Welcome to my podcast, where we will be talking about a variety of mental health issues because, you know, we've all got issues. So as promised on this episode, Discourse on Distress, uh, we are going to be talking more specifically about treatment of anxiety disorders. Uh, I had a lovely podcast reviewer ask when my next episode would be, and this really spurred me to get back to work on this particular podcast. And to help me with this topic, I have a returning guest, psychotherapist, Liza Gold. We are going to be discussing what has and hasn't worked for us with clients and also some of the common themes we see when treating anxiety. But before we dive in, let me reintroduce Liza. Liza is a psychotherapist with a thriving private practice in New York City. She earned her graduate degree from Columbia University and has gained clinical experience working in substance abuse, hospital settings, and group private practices. Over the past six years, she has pursued rigorous postgraduate training in various clinical modalities, including psychodynamic, cognitive behavioral, which we'll be talking about today a little bit, and dialectical behavior therapy. She currently splits her time between her job as administrative director of a group practice and expanding her own private practice. And Liza is also currently in the process of writing a clinical textbook about objective countertransference. So welcome again, Liza. So nice to have you back on my podcast. Let's start with a discussion about the impact of COVID on anxiety. Uh, I recently read in a professional newsletter that, um, that it, the detrimental psychological effects of COVID are going to last well beyond the end of the pandemic. I see that people are increasingly anxious and depressed and my practice is busier than ever. And much of it is dealing with the increase in anxiety and depression that's occurred during the pandemic. How are you seeing the impact of COVID on your private practice? And what are people telling you are the greatest stressors for them? Yeah, well, first of all, Lori, great to be back. Um, you know, there, there's no question that the pandemic has had a pernicious impact on mental health, right? Since last spring, we've seen skyrocketing rates of depression, anxiety, suicidality, drug and alcohol use, and domestic violence, to name but a few pressing issues. COVID has brought tremendous uncertainty to our day-to-day lives. You know, many individual lives and families have been entirely appended due to physical illness and death, unemployment, poverty, eviction, homelessness. I mean, these stark realities, along with chronic isolation that most everybody is facing, disrupts our sense of safety and well being and directly impacts our anxiety and subjective distress. You know, I am noticing lately in my practice that COVID related stress is just beginning to ease, but I'm still seeing the impact of COVID and every single one of my clients has been negatively impacted by the pandemic in one way or another. And it certainly impacted my approach to treatment since I'm living the same reality as everybody else. Yeah, I think those are really good points. You know, one thing that that I see about anxiety related to COVID is people trying to navigate their risk-taking with that of others. So, you know, people with a little anxiety are put over the edge trying to manage their worries and trying to navigate their perception and tolerance for risk with that of their family members who may or may not be as anxious. Now, we know that folks with anxiety are generally risk averse. 
So in the situation with COVID fears, it becomes really difficult for them to cope when there may be others in their life who are less risk averse. So let's say an anxious person isn't ready yet to go out for indoor dining, but their spouse or their, their family members feels that the risk is not overwhelming enough to negate that possibility. So now then this, in my practice, I found it creates conflict on top of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what else I think? I think that my anxious patients tend to be information seekers. They want to control and manage things. So they're uh-huh. constantly seeking information um, about what to do. And you know, you know how that goes. Once you start down the rabbit hole of seeking information, you begin what is now termed doom scrolling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're looking up how many COVID deaths and about the new variants and the possible side mm-hmm. effects of the vaccine. And for some people, this is fine. They can compartmentalize and turn it off. It's really the stuff that keeps my anxious folks up at night worrying. So mm-hmm. for them, as I stated in my last podcast, it's really important to limit exposure, you know? Um Okay, so now we know that there has always been anxiety because we would not have survived as a species without it. But now we're seeing a rise in that anxiety, understandably, like you said, we're all living this. So what is your general treatment approach with people who are anxious? What therapeutic approach do you use and why? I think in some cases, medications have a role in treating anxiety. When it's appropriate, I'll make that recommendation. But in terms of therapy, I tend to lean on an approach that's interactive and action-oriented. And I choose that kind of approach over one that focuses more on building insight. Because when it comes to treating anxiety, building insight and self-awareness is really only a small part of the work. So Generally, with my approach to treating anxiety, I focus on helping clients change unhelpful thought patterns and behaviors that unwittingly keep them feeling anxious or that make their anxiety worse. When it comes to thoughts, I help clients identify what kind of automatic thoughts that occur that actually maintain their anxiety. And I also help them identify behaviors that tend to exacerbate anxiety in the long term. So in a nutshell, you know, I really work to help clients do more of what is working and, and less of what's not working. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, I do the same kind of thing. And what you kind of alluded to a little bit is, you know, what I have termed sort of a biopsychosocial model of treatment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's the potential biological, uh, right. you know, medication, uh, you know, nutrition, things like that, the social aspects of it and the psychological aspects of it. Uh, and CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is certainly a big part of the psychological piece of treatment with anxiety disorders um, and managing one's lifestyle and learning ways to activate one's parasympathetic nervous system. Right. Now, we, we both use CBT um, mm-hmm. to help people manage the cognitive distortions that magnify anxiety. What is your understanding of how and why CBT works well for anxiety? Mm-hmm. Well, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is widely used to treat anxiety disorders. Research shows it to be a very effective approach. When you're using CBT, you being any therapist, you know, we're standing by the premise that certain thoughts affect how we feel and how we behave. So we want to target thoughts. 
So what I do is help my clients slow down and really examine their thoughts, step back and observe them so that we can identify which thoughts may be giving rise to anxiety, maintaining their anxiety or making their anxiety worse. People with chronic anxiety often engage in thinking patterns that, believe it or not, perpetuate anxiety such as chronic worrying and ruminating or predicting the worst of outcomes at all times. So I really wanna help break those patterns so that my clients can better regulate. You know, I kind of liken it to taking a little bit of air out of the balloon. Uh-huh. So when we're in the throes of, you know, I love I love my analogies. When, when <laughs> we're in the throes of magnifying things, catastrophizing or fortune telling, predicting the future, uh-huh. we're thinking in ways that sort of activate that primitive fight or flight part of our brain. Now, when we have to mega think what you're talking about to reflect on and think about our thinking, we are using the more rational and insightful part of our brain, which causes energy then to be shifted away for that flight or fright, fight or flight part of the brain. Now, this may not take away anxiety completely, I found, but it certainly helps to take a little air out of it. And then we can start to replace that anxiety thinking with more rational thoughts that don't magnify risk or minimize our capacity to cope. Mm-hmm. Um, I also feel, I found that people use a lot of emotional reasoning. So, and I'll explain that to our listeners. Emotional reasoning is a distortion in which people believe that a feeling is like a fact. So if I feel nervous, it must be dangerous. Um, and I've asked patients to kind of test this theory out. And, mm-hmm. you know, for example, I had a patient who always felt nauseous before a new situation. And so would avoid new situations, thinking mm-hmm. that she was really sick and she was going to throw up. Now, after truly working on understanding the concept of emotional reasoning, she began to challenge that. And I can remember, I literally wanted to hug her through our computers, mm-hmm. how happy I was when she told me that one day she was feeling nauseous and she was tempted to not go to the party. Instead, she decided that she would test this thought out and go to the party anyway. If she still felt sick after an hour, maybe it was a stomach bug. So she went to the party, began talking to people, and at some point didn't feel sick at all. This was an epiphany for her. That the sick feeling wasn't a fact about her physical health, but part of an emotion and thought that could be overcome by distraction Mm -hmm. and anxiety. Um, What else do you think about in terms of helping our listeners to understand how CBT works to help manage anxiety? You know, in addition to thoughts and emotions, as you, you know, importantly, importantly addressed, I also explore behaviors and coping mechanisms because oftentimes clients develop quick fixes for their anxiety that don't work in the long term. And usually, as you aptly pointed out, those quick fixes involve avoidance or escape, right? Escape behaviors to avoid the anxious feeling or the anxious thoughts. So some examples might be, as you mentioned, avoiding people or situations that cause anxiety, biting your nails, procrastinating, drinking or using drugs, binge eating. You know, these things might work in the moment to temporarily temporarily help escape the feeling, but in the long term, they do nothing to reduce the anxiety in our lives. Right, and in fact, a lot of those coping mechanisms coping mechanisms, which are ineffective, ultimately become problems in themselves. That's right. Such as procrastinating or avoidance or drinking or doing things or or overeating. Things that just perpetuate the anxiety don't really help with it, but now now we're creating new problems on top of it. 
Um, now you talked about behavioral changes as an important part of treatment, mm-hmm. but I find that to be the most difficult part. So how do you talk to your clients about the need for behavioral change and how do you work around the resistance mm-hmm. to facing challenges and anxiety provoking situations? Well, people are reluctant to give up the skills that they think work for them. And not that they think work, that actually do. So let's start with drinking, for example, right? Someone who drinks nightly to cope with anxiety, on a nightly basis, it does work for them, right? Despite the other consequences that come with it. So, you know, people are, are, are only motivated to make changes to their behavior when they, when they finally realize that what they're doing isn't working. So I don't want to strip people of their defenses right away until they've come to that recognition. So I help them work toward that in therapy. My goal is typically to first help clients examine their behavior in terms of how helpful it is. Are their coping mechanisms helping them live the lives that they want? Do their behaviors and coping skills support their values, allow them to live rewarding lives? I mean, I really try to do that work early in therapy to build that motivation to change. Once a client, you know, exhibits readiness to try something new, they're usually at that point accepting of the fact that there's going to be some discomfort with stepping outside their comfort zone. The goal then is to replace their unhealthy coping mechanisms with behaviors that are sustainable and reduce anxiety in the long term. And I like to help clients figure out small steps, sounds like you do too, to take each week. And some of the most important behavioral changes include those that directly and actively challenge what their anxiety tells them to do. You had a beautiful example with a a client of yours who, you know, her anxiety, you know, instructed her to stay home because it made her nauseous, right? And she chose to challenge that voice and go to a party anyway. And she learned it wasn't so bad. And challenging is such an important issue. And I'm really frank with people, you know, that unfortunately, the only way to overcome fear is to face it head on. Mm-hmm. Um, now, those of you who have listened to previous co- podcasts know that I am a huge fan of analogies and examples. So I kind of draw it out for people. So that is, I draw a circle and say, this is what you are now comfortable with. And as long as you stay in that circle, it will stay that size. But if you push at the edges, and like you said, with small steps and expand your comfort zone. Little by little, that circle will enlarge. Over time, what was uncomfortable now becomes comfortable. There's um, a wonderful quote that I use that says, your current safe boundaries were once unknown frontiers. So it's kind of like riding a bike or really anything we do in life from pooping in a potty to going for a job interview. The first time it's scary. So back to riding a bike, you know, when you first do it, you wobble, your heart races, you want to stop as soon as you start it. Your second time, it's pretty bad too, maybe even your third or fourth time. But after the 10th or 20th time, you're riding pretty well. And I think what I have found with my patients is that people underestimate the amount of time that it takes to go from uncomfortable to comfortable. Mm -hmm. So persistence, like you said, small steps are really the key. And also, you know, being in therapy, we get to support our patients while they are experiencing the discomfort, discomfort, kind of figuratively holding their hand through it while they tolerate the discomfort until it goes away. Now, one of my patients once told me that her mantra was, activity is the antidote for anxiety. So 
what do you do to help patients manage their daily level of unease? How important is activity in your mind and why does it help? Well, I think, I think what you're, client is expressing is the fact that distraction is really important, right? Getting out of that kind of overly analytical thought process and, and sort of rejoining the world um, and being able to mindfully be in the moment and enjoy what you're doing. So to that, to that extent, I think activity is very important. You know, whether, whether it's something you're doing to pamper yourself or spending time with loved ones or even running errands, it doesn't matter. You know, but but doing things that keep you busy and active and that bring you joy are going to reduce stress and anxiety in the long term. So again, it doesn't really matter what kind of activity you do, although it should be one that subjectively does bring you a sense of joy and contentment. Um, getting out of the house, going grocery shopping, taking a leisurely walk, the more experiences we build into our lives, the more rich and rewarding our lives become. I usually tell patients to recall if they've ever had a headache or a mild toothache that went away for a time while they were busy doing something else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes I get a mild headache, but if I'm distracted, I really forget about it until my brain is at rest again. When I suddenly remember, oh yeah, I have a headache. And again, this has to do with our brain's focus, right? Mm -hmm. So when we are focused actively on something else, as you've described, our brain doesn't have the time, so to speak, to think about the headache. It's the same with anxiety. Um, kind of like a kid who's scared. Our natural instinct with kids is to distract them. Activity is like that for adults. Whether you're really active, like playing a sport or, or working out a problem, you're not letting your brain rest and fall into the default position of anxiety. So sometimes I tell patients when they're doing the pacing anxious kind of thing to go organize a drawer. Why? Because I think this is like the perfect combination of having to think hard enough to distract oneself, like taking things out and separating them into categories, but not so hard as to be frustrating or stressful. So, and I just love organizing things. So I'm just trying to get the world to conform to that. Um, okay. So finally, Liza, let's talk about how our listeners can help somebody that they love who may be suffering with anxiety. What do you recommend for people? Think of a loved one as anxious to the point that their life is impaired by their anxiety or they're in chronic distress because of it. The best advice I can offer is to recommend that they seek professional support. And when that doesn't feel like an option, I think the next best thing is to provide a listening ear. There's really nothing more beneficial to the soul than to feel heard and understood. And there's no need to correct your loved one's perceptions or tell them that they're wrong or thinking irrationally because their fears and anxieties are very real to them. So I would advise that you listen with an open heart, express understanding of the pain that they're in and ask them directly how you can be of the most support. I, I love that, Liza. I, you know, what, what you're describing is what I kind of call with my patients, I call it the IERP technique, which isn't a real technique. It's just a mnemonic device I use to remember four words. Identify, empathize, reassure, problem solve. Now, what people often do when working with an anxious person is to jump to the reassurance like you're talking about, you know, which is just frustrating for the anxious person. They don't feel understood. So for me, the first step is to just identify and name the anxiety to get the person to step back from their emotional miredness. Then empathize to show that it's normal to feel nervous and to show support. Then finally, after all of that, to help reassure and problem solve. So for example, your kid is super nervous about the first day of kindergarten. 
here's how one would use the IERP. You could say, I can see that you're feeling a little bit nervous about tomorrow, identifying. Totally understand that most people feel nervous about new things. It's normal to feel that way. I felt that way too. That's the empathizing. Then the support or the reassurance, but I will help you through it. I'm gonna drop you off at school or the bus stop and I will be right here at the end of the day to pick you up and hear all about it. And then finally, problem solving. Do you think there's anything that we can do to help you feel a little less nervous? Let's try to think of things together. You know, so you know, putting little heart stickers in their bags and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So as an adult, I think it's really similar. As you said, it's really unhelpful to just tell people, oh, it'll be fine. It sounds dismissive and uncaring. You have to identify and empathize and then maybe get to a realistic reassurance. Um, you know, say if you're waiting for the results of a medical test, you know, it may be fine, it may not be fine. But as a reassurance, one could say, whatever it is, we're going to get through it together. Mm -hmm. So again, I think that we're both kind of on the same page here. We don't want to dismiss our clients who are anxious, be dismissive or uncaring, or tell them they're irrational. Um, we just want to be supportive and then maybe help them get to a better place with it. Um, okay. Well, we have gone on for a very long time at this point. Um, it has been wonderful speaking with you as always. And, um, you know, I hope that you'll be back again. I hope so too. It's, it's been wonderful speaking with you as well. I always enjoy getting together and chatting with you on air. Thank you so much to our listeners and I will see you all again next podcast. psychologist in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Her license and practice information is available on her website, lauriapellpsyd.com. All information provided on Dr. Laurie's podcast is solely for educational and informational purposes and is not meant to serve as psychological counseling. If you have personal issues you would like to explore, please contact a licensed mental health professional in your state.